illuminator that you said you would be. And help us to understand the very book that you have written. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As we start a new study on the book of Genesis today, our scripture passage is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you'd turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we will read verses 14 through 17. So let us stand for the reading of the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. I'm sure nobody in this room would ask the question, why study a book that was written 3,500 years ago? That was written by a guy that had a Jewish mother and was raised in the Egyptian court? Well, I'll give you an answer to that question. You'll never understand the gospel unless you understand the book of Genesis. You'll never understand anything in the Bible unless you understand the book of Genesis. You'll not understand human sexuality. You'll not understand marriage. You'll not understand the raising of children. You'll not understand history. You'll not understand biology and science and astronomy and geology. That's just a few things. There's no way you can look at life the way God looks at life if you don't have a proper understanding of the book of Genesis. Now, why is that? Because it, though it was written by man, it was ultimately authored by God himself. Genesis is a part of that body of literary material we call Scripture. And everything in Scripture... The words, the thoughts, the ideas all originated with God. Uh, let me read to you. You can look up these verses because they're great verses. Let me read to you a few verses of what Jesus thought about Genesis. He said in John ten thirty five, The scriptures cannot be broken. There's nothing in, any, in what is called Holy Scripture that is unreliable, that is untrue, and that can be broken and not applied to your life. Or he says in John 7.23, If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath day, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Scripture can't be broken. The law of Moses, the book of Genesis can't be broken because it's a, a part of that body of truth that originated with God. Luke twenty four forty four. This is after he risen from the dead. Now Jesus said to them, These are my words, which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which were spoken about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All things. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. Verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. 
The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So you see the high view that Jesus had of Genesis as a part of the body of truth called Holy Scripture. Now what's the big deal about that? The big deal is in 2 Timothy 3, where it says all Scripture is inspired by God. Everything that goes under the name Holy Scripture, which when Paul wrote those words in Timothy, included the same Old Testament we have, but in Hebrew, the same Old Testament, and it included the apostolic writings. And all Scripture is inspired of God. And as you've heard me say many times, the word inspired of God means God breathed, or more literally, God breathed out. That this book is not man-breathed, it's not apostle-breathed, it's not prophet-breathed. The 66 books of Holy Scripture, which includes, which includes Genesis, are God-breathed. They originated with Him. Not just the ideas in the book that these words express, but all Scripture. That is what's written down on the page. The written Scripture itself, from Genesis to Revelation, originated with God Himself and not with man. And therefore, it's profitable for all things. It's incapable of error. Whatever the Holy Scripture says, uh, asserts as true on any subject is true because it originated with God. Whatever Scripture says happened, happened because it originated with God. So as you study the Scriptures and you live in them, you become a, a man or a woman of God thoroughly equipped unto every good work. So the re, I, I believe Jesus. And when Jesus says, that Genesis and the Old Testament are Holy Scripture and they originate with God, who am I to question Jesus? So let's study the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, the word Genesis means beginning, book of beginnings. And uh, it was written by a man named Moses in about 1500 B.C. And uh, how do we know that? Are we just trying to impose what we'd like to be back on uh, the scriptures? When I went to seminary, I was told that Genesis through Deuteronomy were written by all kinds of people over a period of a thousand years. Uh, Jesus said Moses wrote it, so I'll take Jesus' words over my professor's. But how do we know uh, Moses wrote it? He said he did, number one. The Old Testament over and over and over and over said Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Jesus said he wrote the book, the, uh, the book of Genesis. The New Testament said he wrote the book of Genesis. So we have the testimony of the entire scripture that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Now what's a big deal? What's a, such a big deal of saying that Moses wrote Genesis and being dogmatic about it? Because if he didn't, the Bible's wrong. If the Bible says Moses wrote Genesis and Moses didn't write Genesis, the Old Testament's wrong, Jesus is wrong, and the New Testament is wrong. And if they're wrong about who wrote the book of Genesis, how do you know they're not wrong about everything else? This is not an academic exercise. This is the pr proclamation of our faith that the Bible is incapable of error. And if it says that Moses wrote Genesis, Moses wrote Genesis. There's no reason uh, not to think that he did. Did not. Now, when Jesus said that Moses wrote Genesis, because 
the Pentateuch, the law of Moses. The Pentateuch is a word that means five. And it's talking about the five books that Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, when Jesus talks about those things, he also makes the point over and over that this is not just a manual of regulations. It's not just a manual of laws, though it does have laws that we are to obey. The book of Genesis and the entire Pentateuch is about Jesus Christ himself. You remember he said, Moses, the prophets, the book of Psalms, the entire scripture is about me. Now, what does that mean? It's not just about him. There's other things there in, in, to say, uh, that it brings out too, but how is the book of Genesis about Jesus? Uh, are we supposed to look for allegories? Are we supposed to look for various stories that uh, in some way or another, under the surface, there are stories about Jesus? No. Jesus is active in the book of Genesis. It's not just about Jesus that would live years later. Jesus is active all through the book of Genesis, starting with Genesis 1-1. He's mentioned in Genesis 1-1 and 2. We're not going to steal our thunder today. We'll get to that another day. So there, there are Genesis is not just a book of stories to tell your children. It is at the heart and soul of the gospel. It tells us who the living God is in Christ. He's the creator. We're the creature. He's the redeemer. We're the sinners. He's the covenant God. We're his covenant people. So this deal, Genesis deals with the basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. Now I want to teach you a Hebrew word. Toledoth. T-O-L-E-D-O-T-H. Toledoth. That word is used ten times in the book of Genesis. You know, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. It's used ten times in the book of Genesis. And those ten times the word Toledoth is used, it, uh, it brings out a new section, a new era, a new chapter in the book of Genesis. Moses didn't write Genesis with the chapters like we have them today, Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Moses wrote it with the ten Toledoths, dividing Genesis and the history of mankind into these Toledoths. Now, I don't tell you that just to impress you with my Hebrew, or so you can impress your friends with Hebrew. I tell you this because this is how Genesis brings out the Lord Jesus Christ. And focuses on him. Uh, when I've forgotten what how it's translated in the New American Standard, I think it is. This is the account of, or in the King James version, this is the generation of. But neither one of those English translations adequately explains the word. The word Toledoth means. This is the outcome of whoever's mentioned in the sentence. This is the outcome of Adam's faith. This is the outcome of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the word Toledoth means this is the outcome of somebody's life. Or this is the history that flows out of whoever's name is mentioned. You see, the book of Genesis over and over tells us it's not a, a poetry that it's not figure of speech, it's historical narrative. And so when you read the book of Genesis, you read it like you would be reading a history book because that's what it is. If you compare the poetry in the Old Testament with the way it looks in the book of Genesis, two entirely different things. The book of, uh, the book of Genesis does not have the earmarks of Hebrew poetry. It has all the marks of historical narrative. 
It's a narrative of mankind that begins at the beginning that we're a part of. In the Old Testament, New Testament, people refer to events and to personages in the book of Genesis all the way to the start as if they were real. Do you remember uh, Romans? Romans 5.12? Where Paul says, uh, if you are in Adam, you die. But if you're in Christ, you're made alive. The second Adam. So what's he doing? He's assuming that Christ is as historical as Adam. And Adam is as historical as Christ. So this is a history book. And it talks about the first several thousand years of the human race. Here's the time frame. Now this drives liberal crazy. Here's the time frame of the book of Genesis. It starts in 4000 B.C. That was when the world was created. And then it goes on to 3000 B.C., which was Noah's flood. And then it goes to 2000 B.C., which was the call of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And then it goes to 1500 B.C. with Abraham and, uh, I mean, with Moses. So it's a real history book. It tells you how, what life was like in the first millennia of the human race. Now, let's go back to this Toledoff. Let me show you the first time it occurs. Turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Genesis and look at verse 4. This is the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth. Now you have liberals out there today who say there are two accounts of creation in the early chapters of Genesis. And uh, they're contrary to each other. They always like to find errors in the Bible. That you have the first chapter of Genesis and the, uh, the uh, description of creation that ends with chapter 2, verse 4. That's the first description of creation. And then with chapter 2, verse 5, through this, the whole second chapter, you have a second account of creation. And if you study them carefully, you'll notice they contradict each other. Well, the people that say that do not understand the word Toledoth. You see the word Toledoth there is in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made earth and heaven. Whenever you see in the book of Genesis that phrase, this is the account of Toledoth. This is the outcome of Toledoth. This is the history that flows out of. It's talking about what follows, not what preceded. Okay? Now, that's important to understand. When you see any one of these ten Toledoths in the book of Genesis, it's not describing what has happened. It's not talking about what precedes it. It's talking about the history that follows it. So let me show you. This isn't two accounts of, of creation. The first account, the, the, the account of creation is Genesis 1, 1, through Genesis 2, 3. And that is the description of how and why God created the heavens and the earth. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, God says, here is the outcome of that creation. Here's the history that flows out of the creation description that I've just written down. And so he begins his discussion of the human race. Now, something else about these Toledoths. I don't want you to forget this. No, this is not just academic. This is how Christ is revealed in the book of Genesis. Toledoth, this is the outcome of, this is the history of. 
Every time one of those Toledoths is mentioned, it narrows down the scene of action. It narrows down the scene of action. It's like when you have a microscope or telescope and you narrow down what you're looking at. You turn the microscope. You turn the telescope so that you look uh, more uh, simply at what has just happened, and it narrows down the scene of action. For instance, in Genesis 2-4, the scene of action is the universe. What's the next scene of action? This is the Toledoth of Adam. So now it narrows down from the universe to Adam, then it's going to narrow it down some more to Seth, And then it's going to narrow it down some more to Noah. And it's going to continue to narrow down and focus in on the scene of action. Okay? Third, every time you see a Toledoth, it's getting you one step closer to Christ himself. One step closer to Christ himself. Now, each one of these Toledoths has a particular theme. And that's important to bear in mind. That's how Genesis is so, why it's so unified. So it's not just a list of names, not just a list of places, Jacob and Esau. But each one of these ten chapters, each one of these ten Toledoths has a particular theme with reference to Christ. And that helped, and that's a wonderful thing. So let's look at them. Turn to to four. Well, in in Genesis one, you see setting the stage. God is setting the stage for the great drama of redemption. And then in Genesis two four through four six, you have the history of creation, and the theme there is. The theater of grace. So from Genesis 2 4 to 4 26, the first Toledoth, you have the, the, the stage of grace, the beginning of history. What's in that section? Creation of Adam and Eve, the covenant God made with Adam and Eve when he made Adam the covenant head of the human race. The fall of men and women into sin. The covenant that God made promising to destroy evil after Adam sinned and providing with a Savior. You have the murder of of Abel by Cain. Those are all the main events in the theater of grace told it off. And what's the point? The point is you look at these things and you see that God created the earth to be a theater, theater of grace on which and in which he would display his goodness and righteousness and justice and holiness and power. So Christ is revealed in the very first Toledoth as one who's going to be the main character on center stage. And he's going to enter the theater of this world and destroy evil once and for all. All right, go next to the next one. The next one is in Genesis 5.1. And in Genesis 5.1 to 6.8, it says this is the outcome of Adam's life. So in Genesis 5 through Genesis 6.8, he's going to talk about how Christ is revealed in the outcome of Adam's life. And what do you have? You have the uh, development of a godly line. You have uh, Cain being evil. But then you have Seth. And then uh, Abel. And then you have Seth at the beginning of a godly line in history. But with that, you have the spread of sin. So I would call this history of Adam the transmission of sin. Here's why the human race needs a Savior. It's because Adam and Eve sinned and they passed a sinful nature and death and condemnation onto their 
children and their grandchildren down through their lineage and showed a need for a Savior to come into the human race. Look at Genesis 6, 9. You see another Toledoth. Now this is 6, 6, 9 through 9, 29. And this is the outcome of Noah's life. This is the history of what happened as a result of Noah living. And what is the main things you see there? The flood, destroying the earth. You see the covenant that God made with Noah. You see the curse on, on Ham, the prophecy on what God would do to the children of Noah. So how would you say define the main theme of this uh, Toledoth? The preservation of history. Now this is so important for us because if you don't believe this, you're going to get caught up in the Green New Deal or the New Green Deal or the Deal New Green or one of those things. <laughs> And I guarantee that those who believe in that don't believe in the Noahic covenant. <laughs> because what God told Noah, he said, I'm going to wipe the world clean with a flood. And then I'm going to preserve history. So nothing will ever happen in history to have the effect of destroying the human race and the world until all of my redemptive work is accomplished and all of my uh, chosen people are saved. God says, I'm going to preserve history. There's not going to be any nuclear bomb. There's not going to be any depletion of natural resources. There's not going to be any big ozone hole. There's not going to be any big climate change that will destroy life on this planet. God says, I promise you. I'm undertaking the responsibility of preserving life on this planet until all of my redemptive purposes have come true in all the lives of my people. And then we have a, another one in chapter 4, I mean, in the fourth one, in Genesis 10, 1 through 11, 9. And that is the history of Noah's sons. Now, some of these aren't quite as familiar to us as others, but they all in one way or another reveal Christ and God's purposes in this world. So in this Toledoth, you have what happened as a result of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, on this, uh, in this world. So what do you have in there? You have in chapter 10, the table of nations. Now remember, this is all historical. Uh, the table of nations tells you where all the children of, of Noah wound up where the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth uh, for many generations wound up all over the earth. And unless you understand the table of nations and God's explanation of the outcome of Noah's son's life, you'll become a racist. Pure and simple. Do you know that nowhere in the Bible is somebody defined by his, the color of his skin? Nowhere. Nowhere in the whole Bible does God say some people are black and some are white and some are yellow and some are brown. Human beings are described in terms of how they are related to Noah's sons. You say, well, that doesn't sound scientific. Who, who am I going to agree you, you, with you? You or God? God does not distinguish people by races. Mr. Darwin thought that up. But human beings are distinguished by which one of Noah's sons they are descended from and how these various peoples relate to each other. I mean, it's a fascinating study. I'll give you just one little illustration. I was talking to a guy in an Italian restaurant who was a, the waiter was a Persian. He was an Iranian. And I said, I want to ask you a question. After thousands of years of being called Persia, why did y'all change the name of your country to Iran? He said, 
because we want the world to know. Now, this guy wasn't a Christian. We want the world to know we are the descendants of Japheth. We are Indo-European, just like the Europeans. All the Europeans are descendants of Japheth. We're not Shemites. Semites. Israel. Arabs. We're not Shemites. We're not Hamites. We're just like Europeans. Indo-Europeans, the descendants of Noah's son, Japheth. So here you have the change of a country in the modern world because of the need to let people know who, which one of Noah's sons they were descended from. Well, what, is, well, what do we all see? We see in this Toledoth the rise of totalitarianism. We see Nimrod. He wasn't a giant. He was a tyrant. And it says he was a great hunter. Yeah, but he was a great manhunter trafficked in human slaves. You see the rise of totalitarianism. You see the Tower of Babel and the attempts of mankind to form a one unified society built upon a principle of revolt against God. And, I mean, people don't realize how many people were alive during those days. Millions of people were alive back during the days of the Tower of Babel. Millions of people. And uh, let me just show you one way you can understand history and archaeology. You know, these guys wanted to build a tower that would reach to God. That would be a monument to the supremacy and divinity of mankind and rebellion against supremacy of God. Uh, it was a ziggurat. That is, it had a general shape of a pyramid Closely looks closely like the pyramids in Egypt, closely like the pyramids of the Mayans in Mexico, closely resembling the pyramid underwater off the coast of Japan. Closely, there was a unity, a worldwide unity of mankind against the living God. So what did God do? Scattered them. Came down and scattered them all over the world. You're not going to sc scatter. I'm going to scatter you. And so here we see God in his faithfulness to human, to his promises, ruling history, overruling evil. Man does not, what ha does not have what it takes to overturn God's plan of the ages. Next, Toledoth, the fifth one. Genesis 11, 10 through 26. That's a short one. It is the history of Shem. It is the outcome of Shem's life. Setting the stage. Shem was the great, 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 great granddaddy of whom? The Semites. Who are the Semites? The Jews. Uh, yeah, I'll steal my thunder. There was a prophecy that God made to Noah concerning his three sons and their descendants. He said, Japheth will prosper and grow to a great size and then it will come to the tents of Shem and worship the God of the tents of Shem and then the Canaanites and the Hamites who were slaves will be set free from their slavery by worshiping the God of Shem. You say, what does that have to do with us? Look at history. The Japhethites are the Europeans. They grew, became a gigantic people, but eventually they worshiped the God of the tents of Shem, a little people in the Middle East. And then the gospel of Shem spreads to the people of color all over the world. It's a great book. So in Genesis 11, you have the fifth Toledoth. 
Genesis 11, 10 through 26, the history of Shem. And what do you see there? The setting of the stage, I call it. You see the shortening of life expectancy. After the flood, people began to live shorter lives. But another thing we don't often think about is people start having children at a younger age after the flood. So we have a, a decrease in longevity and the increase of childbearing at a younger age. And so God forges through Shem's lineage a pathway for the Messiah. Shem's great-granddaddy of Jesus. And he forges a path through Shem's descendants from who ultimately who would be what be the savior of the world. Genesis uh, here's the sixth one. Genesis 11:27 through 25:11. Now that's an interesting one. Because look at it. Because it simply says this is the outcome of Terah's life. Okay. This is the history that flows out of Terah's life. This is what happened as a result of Terah's appearance on the scene. What was Terah's greatest contribution to the history of the world? Abraham. Terah was Abraham's father and we read this is the Toledoth of Terah. That's the last time we read about Terah. Because the important thing is what he left on earth. And that is Abraham. And in Abraham you see the story of the covenant God made with Abraham. I'll be a God to you and your children after you down through your generations in an eternal covenant. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. I will bless you and cause you to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. I will have communion with you as friend with friend. And so we here we see the heart of the covenant of grace, which is what it is. God says, Abraham, you'll be my friend and I'll be your friend forever. And it's easy to apply that to Christ himself because we see in Christ the fulfillment of that promise. The Christ is the mediator. By his sacrifice, these promises have come true and are coming true. That we have communion with God only through Christ's sacrifice. We inherit the land. God says, I'm going to give you a land. What land do you reckon that is? Palestine, that was the taste. That was the down payment. The Bible says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth belongs to the people of God. Who are the people of God? There is the sons of Abraham. Who are the sons of Abraham? Galatians 3.29 the sons of Abraham are the seed of promise and all those who belong to Christ regardless of ethnic origin. I'm a son of Abraham. Not because of any ethnicity on my part. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of, regardless of ethnic origin, Galatians 3.29, then you are a child of Abraham and an heir of all the promises God made to Abraham. And then we come to the seventh Toledoth. Genesis 25, 12 through 18. Maybe the shortest. And it is the outcome of Ishmael's life. The history of Ishmael. Ishmael was Isaac's brother. Ishmael was not a believer. Ishmael was a rebel against God. 
And so you see the separation of Ishmael's family from the covenant family of Isaac. God did not want the covenant family of Isaac to be poisoned. So there was a necessary separation of the evil family of Ishmael from the godly line. And so you see those who are without Christ, those who do not believe in him, have a dark history, a dark future. Study the descendants of Ishmael to this day in the Middle East. <clears throat> then we have the eighth Toledoth and the longest one in the whole book of Genesis. Genesis twenty five nineteen through thirty five twenty eight. The history of Isaac. What's Isaac's great contribution to the history of the world? Jacob. What do we learn about this over and over? That salvation is by sovereign grace. God chose Jacob the younger to be superior to Esau the older. Why? That's the way God wanted to do it. And we see that the sovereignty of grace, we talk about sovereignty of grace. Where do we learn this? We learn this from the Toledoth of Jacob. Why did Esau go to hell for his sins? God hated him. Why did Jacob go to heaven in spite of his sins? God loved him. God made a choice. And that's what salvation is. It's God that determines the eternal destiny of human beings. And I wasn't, I wasn't exaggerating because you remember in Romans 9, that's where we, where we see that God hated Esau and loved Jacob. And so we see in this long Toledoth of Isaac that salvation is by sheer sovereign grace. It's by the decision of God. It's by the choice of God. It's by the determination of God. And not man. And then we have a ninth Toledoth. And that's a short one too. It's in Genesis 36, 1 through Genesis 37, 1. And it is the Toledoth of Esau, the man God hated. It is the outcome and history of Esau's life. And what do you find in this short Toledoth? The contrast between Jacob's life and Esau's life. The contrast between their destinies and their characters and their relationship with God. And you see in this Toledoth the tragedy of life without Christ. I'm sure for a while Esau thought he was Christian. I wouldn't be surprised if, if Isaac didn't think he was Jacob didn't Isaac didn't think he was a Christian, uh, thought he was a Christian. But it turns out that Esau was apostate. And that he had no love for the living God. And his life was one tragedy after another. Throughout the remaining centuries, Esau was an enemy of the church. Uh, for instance, Esau's descendants were the Edomites. And the Edomites were great tribes of people that constantly assaulted the church of God. But Esau didn't win. And then the last told it off in the book of Genesis. Genesis 37.2 through 50.25. The history of Jacob. The outcome of Jacob's life. 
What's the most important contribution Jacob made to world history? Joseph. And here you have the providence of God brought out clearly in the life of Joseph. What's the story that's told it off? How does it reveal Christ? In the humiliation and exaltation of Joseph, you see the salvation of the chosen people of God. Joseph was humiliated by his brothers. And then God exalted him to be the most powerful man in all of Egypt. So as to save the chosen people from starvation. Does that sound familiar? So you see how important Genesis is. It's the gospel. You're not going to understand the gospel unless you understand Genesis. But there's one more Toledoth. Did you know it? There's one more Toledoth in the Bible toward which all these Toledoths have been moving. And that's Matthew 1.1. This is the record of the outcome of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the New Testament is the history of the accomplishments of the Lord Jesus Christ that God had been getting his people ready for for the previous thousands of years. And now in the Lord Jesus Christ you see the complete fulfillment of every promise that God made to any of his people. You see a Savior who will come and save his people from all their sins and will eventually perfect them at his coming and, and cause them to live in a perfect world, a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness throughout all eternity. So you see why Jesus said, Moses prophets, the Psalms, wrote about me. Let us pray. We do thank you, Almighty God, for the way you have so powerfully revealed yourself in Christ throughout history. Thank you for making us believers in him. We pray, Lord, that if we're wrong in any of our views of him or salvation, that you'll change our minds. We pray that you would help us to be steadfast and unmovable in the belief and declaration of the truth as it is in Jesus. Help us to see that the whole Bible was written for us. The seed of Abraham. Those who belong to Christ, regardless of ethnic origin. The heirs of all the promises of God. Now help us to face the future the same way we are facing the past. You're in control of the past. Mankind has never overturned anything that you have done, nor will he ever. You have exerted your mighty arm, and no one will stay your arm. So help us to face the future with the same victory orientation, and the same hope, and the same confidence in your sovereignty and omnipotence that we have faced the past. For Christ's sake, amen. Let us confess our faith in the living God. Would you get this for me, Dutch? By standing and confessing together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. 
He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Now, what's the relationship between Genesis and the Lord's Supper? The great connection is that you need the Lord's Supper to understand Genesis. You need the Lord's Supper to continue to look at your life and face the future in the power of Christ. That the history of with you, which you are a part began in 4000 B.C. It continued through the flood in 3000 B.C. It went on through Abraham in 2000 B.C. It continued in Moses in 1500 B.C. It went on through David in 1000 B.C. and was consummated in 30 A.D. with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now we live for the future, not in order to win the victory. The victory is already won. Our responsibility is to spread the good news that the victory has been secured. Let us pray. We thank you for the good news of the victory of Christ's death and resurrection.